Welcome everyone. Good morning, good evening. We're looking forward to learning with you again this morning. Um, Rabbi Silver, are you ready to start? Yes, I am. Great. Good to go. Okay, well, welcome to this session of the beginning of the end, Journey Through Genesis with Rabbi David Silver. Um, this is our uh, fourth of fifth, five sessions, so second to last session. We will definitely not be finishing Genesis this time, um, but we'll see how far we can get. Um, as you come into the Zoom room, um, I will invite you to become a panelist. Uh, if you choose to accept, it just means that you can turn off on your camera if you want to, so we can see your lovely smiling faces. And when Rabbi Silver invites questions and comments, you can unmute and ask them yourself. Um, when you're not speaking, we just ask that you keep yourself on mute. It minimizes background noise and just means everyone can hear each other better. Um, if you would prefer, then comments and questions in the chat are always welcome. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, then you can leave a Facebook comment um, and I will bring it to the Zoom. Um, I will be sharing the sources on screen, um, but if you wish to follow along in uh, your favorite Tanakh or in your own Safaria, you are very welcome. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to Rabbi Silva. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so we're actually going to be getting, going to begin the Parshat Baichi, which is the end of chapter 47. Now, the last verse told us that Israel here refers, I like, presumably, to the family of Jacob, which has come down to Egypt, are living in the land of Goshen. They are fertile and increasing greatly in Vayeochazuba. They acquired holdings almost. They are, they are becoming part of part of part of Mitzrayim. That's a very important word. By we had in this previous week's parasha, stay achuzas. You really possess. So they're firmly embedded in the land of Egypt, and now we move to the center of the tension. Now becomes Yaakov. The end of Sefer Bereshit. Let's begin with the twenty-eighth pasuk, Sidra Vayichi Vayichi Yaakov Biyaretz Mitzrayim Shvas Reishana. So Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And we know when he met Paro, he blessed Paro. Paro said, how old are you? He said, 130. So um, the years of his life are 147, which is actually very strange to say this at this point, because he's still alive, quite alive. In fact, not just as Yaakov alive, he is the central figure at the end of Sefer Breshit. He may be the central figure of the whole book. He's most certainly the central figure in the remaining chapters. Um, so in any event, let's bear that in mind. But the other point to mention is that the Torah says that he lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years, which means, first of all, this is 12 years after the famine has ended. Rabbi, Rabbi Silva, I'm so sorry. Um, I think uh, you moved slightly from before. Do you mind uh, putting your screen so we can see the bottom of your face a little bit better? Just pull it towards you a little. Oh, hold on a sec. Let me, let me see if I can fix this. Um, I can't see my side. I only see you when I... Oh, look, it. that's much better. That's much better. That, that's better? Great. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you okay. so much. So, the first of all, Yaakov was living in Mitzrayim for 17 years. God told him, you're going to stay there till, till you die. And... Um, 
right, till you, till you die. And Joseph had said it's five more years of the famine, but we see that Yaakov's still there for an additional 12 years. This also may be one of the reasons that the family doesn't leave because Yaakov is staying there. We're trying to figure out why don't they leave after the famine? But in fact, Yaakov cannot leave. He was told to stay there until he dies. So the family stays with him. But in any event, the 17 years is very interesting because we remember back in chapter 41, um, not 41, in 30, chapter 37, that um, Joseph was 17 years old when he had the uh, negative interactions with his brother that caused him to be sold. And um, it means that Joseph is with Jacob for the first 17 years of his life. And Joseph is with Jacob for the last 17 years of Jacob's life. And that's actually very interesting. The Torah clearly wants us to connect that. And the idea being, among other ideas perhaps, that the question of influence of Yaakov upon Yosef. Because Yosef left as a very young person. He's been in Mitzrayim his whole life. He's firmly ensconced. He's a position of great importance, etc. And we saw that. And now the question is to what degree Yaakov can exert some kind of influence on Yosef. That's going to be one of the main topics of the remainder of this book. Because Yosef, to what degree is, is Yosef a Jew? To what degree is Yosef an Egyptian? And we need Yosef to be included in the family. That was Jacob's dream to build this by Everybody gets included, but there's a question over here about Yosef, his own identity in terms of Mitzrayim versus Canaan, because of Mitzrayim versus Israel. And um, <laughs> the other question is, <clears throat> still remains outstanding, is Joseph's relationship to, to, to his brothers. Has he truly forgiven them? Do they trust him, etc.? These, these are the questions that will emerge, but the Torah already sets it up. Jacob is in Egypt for 17 years. But, now let's continue now. By Yikruvu, you may... Israel Amut, by Ikrog of Nogi Yosef, by Yomelo, in Nomad Tati Chain Bienecha, Simna Yotra Tachadirechi, Yosito Imodi Chesed Bemet, Al Nortik Bereni Bimitzraim. So Yaakov calls Yosef, summons Yosef, and he has a request of Yosef. In Nomad, please, he says, if I find favor in your eyes, it's a typical expression. Um, often the expression of one an inferior position to one in a higher higher position, often in terms of God. Moshe requests of God, if I find favor in your eyes. <clears throat> so typically it's from someone on a lower station to a higher station. Joseph, after all, is the viceroy of Egypt. And Jacob is a, a foreigner. Yes, he is Joseph's father, but he, he, he requests of Joseph very politely. But he says, put your hand under my thigh and do for me chesed v'emet. <coughs> That's a very interesting term, chesed v'emet. It probably does not mean uh, kindness and also truth, but it probably more means a, a true kindness. A chesed shevemet. Do for me a great kindness, a true kindness, which is anotik bereni b'mitzrayim. Don't bury me in Egypt. And he asked Joseph to commit himself to this. We all remember back in chapter 24 of Breshit, Avram is old, just as Jacob is old over here. And in chapter 24, beginning of chapter 24, he summons his servant, 
That's Avram in chapter 24. Let's just take a look at that for a moment. Beginning of chapter 24 in the parallel story. Avraham is Arkane Bar by Yamin. Abraham is old, old in years. Bashem Beirachat Avraham Bako, and Avraham was blessed with everything. And then by Yomer Avraham El Avdozikan Beito, Hamoshel Bachor Shalo, Sino Yotachat Yerechi, put your hand under my thigh, summons his servant. He continues speaking. And I will impose upon you an oath. So the putting of a hand under the thigh, some kind of a commitment. But in addition, I want you to swear. I make you, I impose an oath. I will impose upon you an oath. Apparently the greater can impose the oath upon the lesser. This is his servant. Somebody trusts completely, someone in charge of his affairs, but nonetheless, it's still Ebed Avraham. So Avraham says, I will cause, I'll make you swear, impose you upon you an oath by the God of heaven, God of earth, that that you will not take from my son a wife from the, from the, from the Knani, but rather, he says in the next verse, you will go back to my homeland, go back to my land from which I came, Aram, and take from my son a wife. Fine. The servant then raises the question, maybe she won't want to come, and Avram says, no, and then he is, that's not acceptable. If, if she doesn't want to come, you're exempt from the oath. You can't bring my son back over there. And the, uh, the Torah then says later in verse number nine of this chapter, So he put his hand under his thigh and he also, and he swore. That's the story we have in chapter 24. There again, someone is old and can't travel anymore. He's too old to travel. He traveled his whole life, can't travel. He has to rely on somebody else to do his bidding, his servant. And he does two things. He makes the servant, he wants the servant to commit by putting his hand under his thigh, but at the same time, he imposes the oath. And the two come together in verse number nine. He haven't put his hand under the thigh and he swore. That's what it says in chapter 24. Now let's get back to our chapter. Chapter 40, end of chapter 47. So Yaakov says to Yosef, And I'm telling you, I don't want you to bury me, and I don't want to be buried in Egypt. But rather, in verse number 30, when I die, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their grave, there being his ancestors, right? Um, his Avram Yitzchak, his mother, his, his father, his mother, etc. Right? In their grave. Um, in Avotai, with my ancestors. Vayomar, and Joseph says, and Joseph says, I will, I would, yes, I will do this. He commits to his father, I will do it. And then we have the next verse, which is very striking. Vayomer, Ishavali. Yaakov says to Yosef, boy, I want you to swear. And he swears. And Jacob bowed at the head of the bed. So the question, of course, is obvious, which is, Joseph has already said, I will do it. And it sounded like he may even have put his hand under his thigh. It's possible, some kind of a commitment. And why is it necessary to say to Yosef, swear? In the first story, the parallel story, 
the putting the hand onto the thigh and the swearing comes together. There's a conversation exactly what's in, what the evidence is expected to do. And then at the end, he puts his hand under the thigh and he swears. But over here, the text is broken up because in the middle of it, Joseph says, I will do as you say. He commits to his father to do what, he, what the father has requested, namely, not to bury him in Mitzrayim and to bring him back to the ancestral grave, the kever of Avotai of my ancestors. Why is it necessary to make him swear? He already said he's going to do it. Isn't he good for his word? Does he trust him or not? This is the question. So I think there are two different approaches here. I'll, I'll suggest two different approaches uh, to this question, to, to resolving this problem as to why, he, after he says, I'll do it, he still makes him swear. One of them has to do with the question whether, in fact, he will do it. And already the Mepharshim, already the Russian Mepharshim pick up on this because the point is that, yes, he is committed to doing it, but we can foresee a possibility that it might not be so simple to carry this out. Yes, he is the viceroy of Egypt. He's the second in command, but there's somebody who's first in command, namely Paro, and it could be that Paro will not be very anxious to permit a, the father of a very important dignitary to be carried out of the land of Mitzrayim. And in point of fact, we do know that when you get to chapter 50, where Yosef wants to bury his father, he can't even speak directly to Paro to make the request. He pleads with the servants to speak to Paro for him. And Paro said in chapter 50, Go and bury your father as he made you swear. So it sounds like the oath is very important to Paro. He emphasizes the oath. So the, in point of fact, uh, that could be a reason. In other words, because, you know, Yosef could perhaps rationalize it. Yosef could say, I know my father wanted me to bury him in the land of, not in the land of Egypt, and to go back to the, to the ancestral grave. But look how difficult it is. Paro's giving me all kinds of problems, and Paro's be very dangerous for us. And my father would understand if I say, well, you know, I know I really want to do it, but given the circumstances, father would understand me not carrying out his request. So father, Jacob says to Joseph, swear. In other words, father will not understand. Father, father would want me to do X. No, that's not true. Father wants you to bury me in the land of Canaan under every circumstance, and there's no excuses. So that could be one reason for the oath. So the oath is a way for, that's how some of the Mepharshim see it, the oath is a way to make it more likely, first of all, that Paro will, will, will in fact agree. And it also, I would add, maybe they don't suggest this, but it makes it, maybe they do, it, it makes it, um, it gives Yosef a frame of mind where it, the thing has to get done. Because that's what the shvur means, you have to do it. There's no such thing in the Bible of taking an oath and not keeping the oath. The idea of hatarat nidarim, some will get out of an, an oath or a vow that one made, is in the words of the Mishnah, floats in the air and has no basis in the text. Because in all of the Bible, there's only one case I can think of where somebody took an oath and it wasn't carried out. And that was Saul's oath that whoever ate 
uh, food on the day of battle will, will in fact be killed, will die, will be guilty of a crime and put to death. And Jonathan didn't know about this oath. He's off by himself actually fighting and he eats, goes to the forest of honey and he eats. And it turns out that it's, so we, Saul finds out that Jonathan in fact did eat. It wasn't intentional, he didn't know. But he says, Jonathan should die. Jonathan violated the oath. And in that instance, and only in that instance, the people said to Saul, what? How can you kill Jonathan? He brought about the whole redemption and they prevent Saul from carrying out his oath. Saul would have done it, would have killed his beloved son. He would have done it. That's the only example we have. You take an oath, you keep your oath. That's the story of Yiftach, basically. It was crazy, but Yiftach took an oath, a foolish one. Whoever comes to greet me shall be a sacrifice. And his own, his only child, his daughter came. And it sounds like he actually sacrifices her. That's what it sounds like. So oath means you keep your oath. Hatarat nedarim and all that, Murray itself says, Mr. says, floats in the air, has no basis. So when you say to Joseph, swear, it means do it in any event, no matter what. And this way, it also will serve as a, a way to convince Paro. Paro spoke about God. Paro talks about this language. So he'll understand. You take an oath, you keep the oath. That's one path. That's one way to understand this, that the issue is actually the imposition of the oath is a way to guarantee that what Yaakov wants will actually happen. We suggested a couple of reasons that might not happen. Basically, the idea is Joseph can't rationalize it. Plus, he gives a weapon to Joseph to convince Paro to, 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 to permit it. That's one path. Then there's another path, which is not about convincing Joseph or not thinking Joseph might not do it. Joseph has said, Father, I will do it. And Yaakov trusts him. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. How oh, could be difficult? He'll do it. If it's impossible, he can't do it. If Paolo says you can't do it, the army prevents him from going, he won't be able to do it. But under any other circumstance, Joseph will do it and Yaakov trusts him. But the oath is a different point over here. It's not so much about convincing Joseph or it's about teaching Joseph that what he's saying over here is something else. My return to the land after my death is done through an oath. It's not just I want to be buried with my parents and grandparents. It's not just family. It's something else. I see my return to the land as a sacred obligation. And here we touch upon something that is very central in the, in the, in the Torah. We remember that when Yaakov first leaves home, he's running away from his brother and God appears to him in a dream and says, I'm gonna protect you. I'm not gonna abandon you. I'm gonna bring you back. And we thought Yaakov's going for a short period of time. His mother said, I'll call you in a few days. And we come to understand it's not a few days. It's not gonna be simple to return. It's gonna require divine intervention and divine providence. And when Yaakov wakes up, what does he do? He takes a vow. So the return to the land, he vows that if God allows it to happen, he will return. And the same thing is true later. God, God makes, take, takes a shvua, right? God swears to Avram, Yisuk, and Yaakov to give them the land. And later in the book of Bamidra that we're just starting to read, there's a story of the first war against uh, the king of Arad, and Israel took a vow to the nether. To return to the land 
is through the oath and through the vow, which means, what is an oath? An oath is the imposition of God's name. So Yaakov is saying to Yosef, in effect, you're going to do it. Let me explain something to you about returning to the land. It's not just about parents. It's not just about that. There's something else for Yaakov, that returning to the land is a religious obligation. Mitzrayim is a contradiction to everything that Yaakov believes, which is this, this connection to God, the dream of Yaakov, the, the, the ladder to heaven. That's where God speaks. That's where God is present. He's saying to Yosef something else by implication, which is the return to the land is through the Shua. My return is, I, that's, I want you to understand that. And I want to impose the oath upon you. And we all remember, of course, at the very end of this book, which we're not going to get to in this set of classes, but the very end of the book is Yosef telling his brothers, the very end of the book, remarkably, after I die, take my body, my body back, my bones back, Back, back with you to, to the land of Canaan. Take me with you. And what does Yosef do? He makes them swear. He imposes an oath upon them. So Joseph is a very good student. He does exactly what his father did to him, is what Yosef is saying to his brothers. Take me back. I impose upon you an oath to bring me back to the land of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So these are two different approaches over here for the need, the Yaakov, to... Uh, impose the oath. And in point of fact, they don't actually contradict. I believe they're both true. That is, one has nothing to do with the other. It could be that he's giving Joseph a weapon to ensure that it happens. It could be he's telling Joseph it's got to happen no matter what, no rationalizations. But on top of that, he's saying something additionally, which is the return to the land is via the oath, is via the, is via the, is via the shua, right? So the vow and the oath because it's a sacred obligation. Okay, let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions of what we've seen so far. Um, feel free to unmute yourself to ask a question or ask it in the chat and I will read it out. Maybe that's why Yosef uses the phrase Pakod code. But Pokol we'll get to, but Pokol has to do with recognition. Yeah, Pokol can mean redeem. Yosef comes to realize by the end of the book that, that we need to be redeemed. It, and it was the opposite of what he said earlier. He named his son Menashe. Right. He wants to forget his father's house. And by the time the book ends, he's the one who's lecturing the brothers. It's remarkable. He lectures them. Pokol Yifkod, Elohim, Etchem, etc. Halitim, Etatzbotai, Mizeh. So that's for sure. Now, how that transformation takes place, we'll talk about. Yaakov has a lot to do with it, obviously. Not just Yaakov, but Yaakov has a lot to do with it. But yes, Yosef comes to that understanding. But I mean, that becomes like the password of, of going forward. Right, that's the medrash. That later on, Moshe goes to Mitzrayim and says, right. but for sure, I mean, Yosef is the one who sets it up. There's no question about it. And Yosef's learning from Yaakov, basically. But Yaakov's really saying over here. He's saying two things. I don't want to be here, he says, number one, in Mitzrayim, and number two, I want to be there. Two separate statements. It can't be here. But on top of that, I want to go back to Kivot Avotai, and then I claim he's saying more than that, because that is the, that is the religious center. And the, you return to it through the oath. You return to it through it. But the, what, the oath is the imposition of God's name. You return to it through the imposition of God's name. That's, that's, our, that's our mission, to live in God's shadow and to do God's bidding. 
and to hear and, and to hear what God has to say. They give communication, which does not quite take place in Mitzrayim. It's a place of God's silence. So we got to get back to a place where we can hear God's voice. Um, anybody else for a comment or question? If not, we'll just continue. Okay. So let's start with chapter 48 now. Go as far as we can go. We have chapter 48. So afterwards, sometime afterwards, by the way, that expression, appears in this book six times. Six times we have that expression, it's actually very interesting where it appears. It appears three times in the Abraham story, three times in the Abraham narrative, and three times in the Joseph narrative. It's interesting. The, through the connection of Yosef and Abraham is something to talk about, discussed a little in the past. In any event, after these things, someone said to Joseph, your father is ill. Um, we know earlier it said, by Yisrael uh, Lamut in a couple of verses earlier. So his death is imminent or near. And Joseph is told, Your father is sick. So he goes to see him, but he also takes with him his two sons to see their grandfather, presumably. We don't know why he brings his two sons. I mean, we're going to find out why the Torah tells us he brings his two sons, but presumably to see his grandfather. He's sick and he wants his grand the grandchildren to see their grandfather. Joseph reveres his, his father. That's clear. He brings his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Okay. Menashe is the oldest, and Ephraim is the youngest son, of which the Torah has told us nothing at all except their names and reasons for the names. Okay. So someone, again, doesn't matter who it is, J Jacob is informed by Yomer, your son Joseph is coming. So Israel straightened himself and he sat up in the bed. So he's, he's sick, he's lying in bed. So when he hears that Joseph is coming, he says he summons his strength and sat up in bed. What is this idea of summoning his strength, actually? What is, what is the point of that? It seems like if Torah hadn't said it, it's completely superfluous. Could have said, Joseph, Jacob told he's coming, and then the whole thing, even, not even need that. Could have started with the next possible. Yaakov says to Yosef, starts talking to Yosef. So I'll just suggest one thing about the is the Torah's way of saying that he's about to say something extremely powerful to, to Joseph, something that requires a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, strength it's going to tell him things that are not so simple to tell and this is almost i mean jacob doesn't die yet he's about to, he will bless in this chapter and he bless all his sons in the next chapter but there's something about here that requires and we'll see what it is summons up his strength he sits up in bed <coughs> before that i want to mention i forgot one other point i wanted to mention about the previous story after he, 
after he says, he says to Joseph, swear to me. That's the last verse of chapter 47. I want you to swear. <coughs> and Joseph does swear. So Israel bowed at the head of the bed. So Israel is Yaakov. So when Joseph does this, Yaakov bows at the head of the bed. Sounds like he bows to Joseph. And here, <coughs> here's what's interesting is if we remember Joseph's dream back in chapter 37, second dream. The second dream was the sun and the moon and 11 stars will bow down to me. At that point, Yaakov rebukes Joseph. And, and what is this dream you're dreaming, says Yaakov to Yosef in chapter 37. Me and your, and, and, your, and your mother and, and all of us are going to bow down to you. And the brothers were jealous. But in the dream, Yaakov interprets the dream. Yaakov says, the dream must mean the sun, the moon, and the stars, 11 stars bow down. The 11 stars, your 11 brothers. I got to be the sun. S-U-N, I'm the sun. What, do you think I'm going to bow down to you? So the brothers were jealous, but Jacob remembered the dream. Rashi comments, just remembered it and actually wanted it to take place. So where does it take place? Where does Jacob bow down? So Jacob bows down over here in our verse. Sounds like he's bowing to Joseph. He could be bowing to God in appreciation for God enabling this to happen, that's possible. But in the context, it sounds like he's recognizing what Joseph did, he bows down. And the point I wanted to make about that, if we assume he's bowing to Joseph, the point is that there's a kind of, it's kind of ironic in a sense. Normally when you bow down to somebody, you're saying to them, you are superior to me, I'm grateful for you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's always the, you know, the inferior bowing down to some kind of superior, whether it's a person in, person in important standing in government or whatever, or God, obviously. But over here, the context is very curious because Yes, it's true that Yaakov bowed down to Yosef, but the context of it is, he's telling his Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, listen, under no circumstance am I to be buried over here. And not only that, I want you to do this. Father, I will do it. Really? Now swear. That's hardly the inferior, talking to the superior. He's telling you what to do. He's bossing around, he's imposing an oath. We impose on your servant. So yes. It is his bowing down to Joseph, but the bowing down is in the context, not of the one of the lower station bowing down to the higher station. But the whole point of it is that this old fellow is, is telling his important son exactly what to do. In appreciation for the fact that he, in fact, does swear, he bows down to him. That's, so that you have a fulfillment of the dream, but not in the way we anticipate. It's a fulfillment of the dream with Joseph exceeding to the wishes of his father. Okay, just want to make that point. Uh, now we'll get back to our story over here. So uh, ya Yaakov is told, Yaakov strengthens himself. And now, beginning in chapter 48, verse number three, we have some of the more remarkable psukim in this book. Suddenly, what Yaakov, Yaakov begins to talk to Yosef about the past. 
a tells Joseph about what happened to him in the past. And he says, beginning in verse number three, says Joseph, a long time ago, God, and the particular name of God over here is El Shaddai. Of course, the names of God are very significant, but the names of God all have particular valence to them, a particular meaning to them. And he says over here, the God who appeared to me in Luz, in the, back in the land of Canaan, who blessed me was El Shaddai. And in point of fact, what Yaakov is saying to Yosef is pretty much explicit in the Flemish. Um, we take a look at chapter 35, in chapter 35, beginning in verse number nine of chapter 35. There it says that God appeared to Yaakov again when he returned from Padan Aram, from the house of Laban, by Yavarech and God blessed him. And what did God say to Jacob in verse number uh, 10? Your name is presently Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. Israel shall be your name, and God called him Israel. So that's by way of introduction. So you're not just Jacob, you're Israel. And now the next verse. Uh, and God said to Yaakov, I am El Shaddai. Uh, Pray or be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and the company of nations shall descend from you. Kings shall issue from your loins. And the next verse, I will the land I promised I'll give to you and to your descendants after you. Those are the psukim in chapter 35. He would, upon returning from the house, from the house of, 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 of Lavan. And now Yaakov talks to Yosef and cites that whole episode over here. He's actually telling Yosef, it's almost the same life, the same language with some interesting variations. Come back to our verse. Yaakov says to Yosef, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz and blessed me. And this is what God said to me back in chapter 35. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. The language over there was pray or almost identical language. Over there, the language was and then I will give you this land to your descendants as a permanent possession, there the language was, um, it's almost as if Yaakov is just quoting the Chumash. He's quoting the Chumash. He's telling Yosef what happened, and you look back at it, and the language is very, very, very similar with some interesting differences. Now, why is he saying all this? So he's saying all this because of verse number five that we're about to read. Namely, he's saying to Yosef, and now I'm, one, I'm going to interpret for you what God said to me back in chapter 35. Yaakov here is a parshan. He's actually interpreting the Chumash. He's interpreting the words of the Torah. One might say he's interpreting his own life. 
Because what did God mean? When God said to me, pray or obey, be fruitful and multiply a nation, a company of nations, what did that mean? So now Yaakov is going to interpret this. I want, to, I want to interpret for you, Yosef, what God said to me in chapter 35. I believe he's not just interpreting for Yosef. I believe he's interpreting for Yaakov. In other words, he's saying something to Yaakov, which is not actually clear when you first read it, is the plain meaning at all. But here's what Yaakov says. Here's my understanding now of what God told me earlier. I wanna talk more about this because this is very central feature of, I think of, of Yaakov. It was one of the great abilities of Yaakov so to, to kind of reinterpret, to reinterpret his own life. Now he says the following, Biata. so now. Here's the first thing he says. When God said to me, be fruitful, I came back from the house of Laban. Comes back with, a, with, a, with 11 sons and a daughter. Um, the only one not yet born was Binyamin, who's born a few verses afterwards. Now, so what does it mean? Be fruitful and multiply a nation and the company of nations I will make from you. What does that mean? So Yaakov says, what it means is, Ephraim um nasher, kiruvein v'shimon yiyuli. My understanding now of what God meant when God said, be fruitful and multiply, have more children. He doesn't have more children. He has one more child. He has Binyamin. So what did God mean? A nation and a company of nations will emerge from you. There must be more children, but there are no more children. So now I understand what God meant. God meant that your two children are actually mine. These two kids of yours, the ones born before I got here, before I came, those are my children. The ones that are born afterwards, but the ones born afterwards, they're yours. They'll be included in the inheritance of their brothers. I'll, I'll talk about that later. But in, in short, leave that out of the ones born afterwards. We don't actually have mention of Joseph having other children. He may have had children. Ramban thinks he had other children, but the Chumash doesn't tell us about the other children. It tells us about Ephraim and Menashe. That's Yaakov. Yaakov says Ephraim and Menashe. Notice when Joseph brings them, it says he brings Menashe and Ephraim. The order's already been shifted over here. When Yaakov talks, Ephraim and Menashe are my children. In other words, what did we think originally before we knew about Ephraim and Menashe? When you read chapter 35, when God said to Jacob, be fruitful and multiply a nation and the company of nations shall emerge from you. We don't know about Menashe and Ephraim. So what, so what did we think? Well, I'll tell you what I thought anyway. What I thought a minute was this. Maybe Yaakov thinks this, who knows. But just before God says to Yaakov, I am El Shaddai, just, be, just before that, the Psukim before that say, your name is not Jacob anymore. Your name is Israel. And God called Jacob Israel. So my understanding is, that what, ya what God is saying to Yaakov is, you are not just Jacob, but you're Israel. Israel can mean you are Israel, but the name Israel is also the name of the Jewish people. The nation is Israel, so we are B'nai Yisrael. So I thought it meant when I first read it that God says to Yaakov, you're not just the individual Jacob, you're the individual Israel, 
but you're also the people of Israel. And in that sense, you will, you, will, you will be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall emerge from you. God is not talking about Jacob the person anymore. God is talking about Jacob who represents all of Israel. That is to say, you are Israel. You're going to become a nation. And this nation will, will grow and multiply. And within this nation, there shall be a nation and a company of nations. I think that's the plain meaning of it. There are no more children. There's Binyamin. But now Yaakov says something different. Maybe Yaakov says, that's what I thought the shot was earlier. But now I have come to recognize at the end of my life, looking back at that event, when God changed my name, um, that God has something else in mind. And that's the continuation in verse number seven, which I want to read and I'll stop and take comments or questions. Then he says something very strange. He says, And when I came back, Meito Alai Rachel Biaritz Kanan Baderech. Rachel died upon me. His beloved Rachel dies in the land of Canaan, Baderech, on the path. Beyond Kivrat Eretz Lavo Ephrata, a short distance from Ephrat. And I buried her there on the path to Ephrat, he Beit Lechem, which is now Beit Lechem, Bethlehem. So the question is, and Rashi asked the question basically, why is Yaakov saying this over here? Why is Yaakov telling Yosef that when I came back from Padan Aram, that Rachel died and I buried her on the, on the path? First of all, so why is it, what's the relevance of that? Rashi, say, Rashi says, Rashi says that what Yaakov is saying to Yosef is the following. In the earlier conversation, the end of chapter 47, I asked you not to bury me in Mitzrayim, to bring me back to the grave of my ancestors. So now Rashi says, and, I'm, I'm, and, and I did that, I want you to know, by the way, that your mother is not buried there. Nonetheless, I, she wasn't buried there because she died on, on the derech. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't take her there. She died on the path. So I had to bury her where she died. So I buried her there a little distance from Bethlehem. But nonetheless, I still request of you that bury me there because the rest of my family, including Leah, and my parents and grandparents are all buried there. That's what Rashi says. The difficulty with Rashi is obvious, which is without the actual shot over here, why is Yaakov saying it in chapter 48, verse number, verse number seven? It belonged back in chapter 47. He could have said, listen, don't bury me in Mitzrayim, take me back there. I know your mother died, your mother's not buried there. Nonetheless, I still make the request, honor, please honor my request, I did that because, and you may know where she's buried or may not know, but it's because she died on the derech. She died suddenly on the path on the derech, so I had no choice. But, but here we have a choice. So I ask you to bury me back with my ancestors. That's what would have made a lot of sense, but it doesn't seem to make very much sense to mention it over here, just after Yaakov has said to Yosef that uh, God blessed me on the, because the death of Rachel was a few verses afterwards in chapter 35. She gives birth to Ben Binyam and she dies in, in, in childbirth. And um, that's what Yaakov is referencing over here. So what's the connection? So it's, here's what I would suggest about the connection, which is the following. What Yaakov says to Yosef is this. God spoke to me in chapter 35 and gave me a blessing. God said, or a commandment, pray or evade. Be fruitful and multiply. 
here God uh, says in the, over here in the previous verse, that's in chapter 48. That's in verse number, what, six or five or six, right? Right here. Um, and then a very strange thing. Be fruitful and multiply. It sounds like have more children. And then my wife dies. Now she dies in childbirth. So she's not going to have more children. She has one child. She has Binyamin. She may be, she's probably already pregnant with Binyamin too. So what did it mean, says Yaakov, when God said, pray or obey, to have more children? I couldn't figure that out. It can't be me personally, because how could I have more children? My beloved wife just died. Says Yaakov, no, no, no. Here's how I come to understand it. That Rachel in her death will have more children. Because where did Rachel, where, where, is, where did Rachel die? Where did Rachel die? He says she died. The old Kivrat Eretz, but she died on the path. But where? The old Kivrat Eretz, the Ephrata. Ephrat, he Beit Lechem. She dies in Ephrat. So, what a strange place to, to die. Because what does Ephrat mean? Ephrat presumably is related to the word She dies in a place called, she died in infertility. What? What does that mean? She dies in Ephrat. Says, says Yaakov, now I understand it. That what God must have meant was that Rachel will have more children, even in her death. How could she have more children? So the answer is she can't have more children, but she has grandchildren. And these two grandchildren of Rachel, those children are mine. I'm actually, it's remarkable what he's saying. These are now my children, not your children. These are my children. And this actually suggests something further which of course is very central to the story. You have Mafrach over here, Biticha. You have Prey Urvei in chapter 35. You have the death of Rachel's wife in Ephrat. And now we come to understand something else. Yaakov favors of the two sons of grandchildren of Yaakov and of Rachel. The one Yaakov favors is in fact Ephraim as opposed to Menashe. But Ephraim and Ephrat are, uh, Ephraim and Ephrat of course are obviously related to each other. So Yaakov is interpreting his own life in, 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 light of, in light of what I now see, says Yaakov. I come to understand that Rachel is the one who's gonna have these additional children. These are her grandchildren, which I adopt as, as, as my children. That's point number one. Now there's something else over here, which is very important in terms of what Yaakov is doing. He, with the emphasis over here, in terms of Rachel, is Rachel She died baderech on the path, and he says, "I buried her there baderech, baderech Efrat he beit lechem." So, what is the focus on baderech over here? So, what I would say is the following: Rachel died on the on the path. Why did Rachel die? So, presumably, Rachel dies because she stole these 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 trophim. Yaakov, in fact, had said, "Whoever took them should die." Whoever took the trophim should die. And by that, Yaakov means, or the Torah means, not just because he, he said those words, because how could you possibly return to the land of Canaan, go to Beit El, right? Yaakov in chapter 35, let's go back to Beit El. How can you go to Beit El if you have trophim? In fact, remember in chapter 35, Yaakov says to the family, remove all of the idols. So now the question is, how does one view Rachel? 
You can view her in two different, you can see Rachel is a sinner. Okay, she stole the trophy she's connected to, to Lavan in some profound way, and she dies by Derech. That's one way to read it. But there's another way to read it, which I would say is a more generous reading. She was on the, the road back. She was, she was, she was by Derech. She was, she was on the road back. She was moving in the right direction when the life was cut short. What Yaakov is choosing to do over here is to view Rachel this, this, this the second way. As she dies by Derech means she was on the path back. And Yaakov sees his own role as making sure that Rachel was fully a part of the, the family. Remember, Yaakov's mission, as he himself presented, is to build the bayit. So the, the problem, the part of the bayit that seems to be most distant from, from his conception of, of God's house would be the side of Rachel. She stole the trophim. Then you have Yosef, who is, uh, who is in Mitzrayim, the Egyptian, and even Binyamin, who was born, but Rachel named Binyamin ben Oni, the son of my Oni, which I think means son of my iniquity, son of my sinfulness, son of the Trophim. But Yaakov changed the name. My son can't be ben Oni. So he becomes Binyamin, son of my right hand. So what Yaakov is doing over here, and that's the reason Yaakov has to be in Mitzrayim, is to bring back that entire side of the family, including Rachel whom he chooses to view positively. Yes, Rachel will have more children. Rachel's part of the family. Yes, she did die, but it was Baderech. She was on the way back. And of course, Yosef uh, will be included as well, as we shall see shortly, how Yaakov managed to do that. But more than that, I think the very, what makes this very powerful story, as far as I'm concerned, is Yaakov's ability to reinterpret his own life, which he actually does earlier. Because he's 20 years in the house of Lavan. And those 20 years, he works 14 years for the two wives and the children. Then he works six additional years for the, to make, make a living. And he makes a fortune. He manages to manipulate all the flocks. He's extremely wealthy. And then he, he recognizes and God tells him time to get out. And Yaakov is confronted by Lavan. And Yaakov says to Lavan at the end of the conversation, let me describe these 20 years. For these last 20 years, I've been an Ebed. And for the last 20 years, I've been oppressed. And then he leaves and goes back home. And Esav is coming. And he sends a message in Lavan Garti. I was a stranger in the house of Lavan. In other words, what Yaakov is saying, that was never my place. Now, if he asked Yaakov in the middle of those six years where he's raking in the money, he might not stay. It's not my place or when he has his dreams about the speckled and the spotted animals. His dreams are about his bank accounts. But after he leaves, he looks back at it. He says, you know something? That wasn't me. That's not my mission. That's not my place. He's, so Yaakov's great ability is to reinterpret, him, reinterpret his past. And that's what he's doing over here in this right remarkable puzzle. Instead of stuking, he's saying, I now come to understand what God meant. My whole life, I didn't understand it. But now I understand it. I understand... Uh, what it meant, pray or obey. I understand how that has to happen. I understand the significance of Rachel's death and where she dies, not just by Derek, but next to Ephrat. And uh, I'm gonna act upon this. So I'm gonna bring Rachel back into the family. And I'm gonna bring Joseph back into the family. But how will Joseph be brought back into the family? He'll be brought back into the family through Ephraim and also through Menashe, through Joseph's children and Jacob's grandchildren, and Rachel's grandchildren, Joseph 
can be fully incorporated back into the family. And yes, the kids who were born before I got down here, these two Egyptian boys, they got to become mine. I'm going to make sure they're mine and I can't trust you with this. So I've got to do it myself. I am hereby adopting Joseph, your two children as mine. That's why it says, the chutzpah has no bounds over here, but it's necessary. They're not yours, they're my children. Now later Jacob returns them to Joseph. That's what he says. So the ones one afterwards, they were going to be okay. I'll leave that for now and maybe talk about the next week. But okay, so let me stop at this point to take any comments or questions. These are quite remarkable psukim, actually. Um, okay, comments or questions, anybody? Um, we have a few questions from Ozzy in the chat. Um, I think at the end of chapter 27, correct me if I'm wrong, Ozzy, uh, Ozzy said, it reminds me of King David summoning his strength to designate Solomon as his successor. Um, and he also says, uh, Joseph was given Shechem. So who of Joseph's descendants lived in Shechem? Joseph being given Shechem, we'll get to later on. That's the, that's the, that's, that's the end of the chapter. Um, it's not clear, actually. Yes, the, the town of Shechem is in Joseph's section. Shechem actually, and that's where Joseph is buried. He's actually buried in Shechem. Uh, as far as the story of uh, King David mustering his strength at the end to, to yeah, I mean, the story stories have some parallel to them. Of course, they're different in, in many ways, obviously. That's a much darker story, but you, yeah, but for sure. And by the way, that... Um, that story about King David, well, that's one of the two after all that's related to Parshat Vayechi and the, and, and the, and the, and, and Chayisara. That's true. The, the person who's old who has to muster his strength at the end to come to make a good decision, there is that parallel there for sure. What else do we have? Um, we have a question from Ben also in the chat. This discussion brings up a question that has always puzzled me. Why doesn't Yaakov move Rachel's bones to Marat Hamachpela? Is it because um, you are now explaining that there is something special about her staying on the road as her destiny as a progenitor is not yet complete until Yosef's children are claimed? Or is it because two sisters can't be buried in the same place? Okay, so that's a very, so that's the Ramban. So what, what Ben is mentioning is the Ramban. The Ramban addresses this question and the Ramban puts it in terms of the two sisters. It's explicit. The Ramban asks this question, and it's the Pasha. And the Ramban says that because they're two sisters, and uh, Jacob couldn't be married, you know, later it becomes forbidden. So he didn't want that to be, you know, in the this sort of a national shrine to have two sisters buried there. I mean, the other point is that the way you know in Rosh Hashanah we read the Haftorah about Rachel Mavaka Abonela, that there's something about Rachel not being buried there. Something about that's the, the prophet Yeremio sees it that way that her being by Derech uh, is significant because she's the person who doesn't have a place. Now, I'll tell you something, let me just take a, two minutes aside to, just to relate to, relate to the, the question, which is an important question, obviously. I was just reading a book recently, you know, I just got in the mail a book. It's got this thing, is, uh, Josh, I think his first name is Trubach, who did some teaching for Drisha in Israel. He wrote a book about Rav Kook and Rav Shagar. And um, in this book, uh, in this book, he talks about what their contribution, he talks about particularly Shagar is different from Rav Kook. 
One of the points that Shagar made, he was actually a very important person, was the idea of Shagar, you know, in the early history of Israel, once the state was established, and maybe even before that, there was certainly a real sense of many Israelis that we want to forget the past. We want to forget our experience in exile. We want to forget the Shoah. Jews were weak. It was a negation of, of the Gullahs in a very deep sense. And of all that, you know, basically most of our history, and it was the idea we are a new we are a new Jew with a strong Jew with a powerful Jew etc. It was a very and what Shagar was pushing for he was the Rosh Hashiva and Siach in many places very important voice and he was pushing for something very different which is of not forgetting that past and understanding that Jewish uh, wisdom has been shaped largely by exile and that we have to remember that and we also have to honor our own past. And honor all those people who suffered, not to see them just as victims or as people that couldn't act or whatever, but to take their wisdom. And his point was, I think it's the point that I personally believe a thousand percent, that the idea of thinking something is fully mine, this is my place, I think always carries with it a great danger. There always has to be a sense that it's not fully mine, it's God's place. So last week's Torah reading, the land is mine. We are it. Talks about sukkahs. The idea of you have a home, but you leave every so often from your home to understand it's never fully yours. So I think that is, that's my understanding of Rachel's Baderech. The fact of the matter is that we need someone who represents the idea of not having a place. And that's what Rachel, and that person who doesn't have a place can also appreciate people don't have a place. It's Rachel, who is Mavaka Abonela, who's waiting for her children to return. She understands what it means not to have a place because she has no place. She's, she's Baderech. She's the only one. Everybody else has their place. So the idea of being Baderech to me is, has a positive side. So I just was reading him the last couple of days about, that I'm quite familiar with him, but the point is, I think that's a really important point not getting into any kinds of politics. I think when people think this is mine to the exclusion of everybody else is when you get into all kinds of problems. Um, and you forget what the Torah says in last week's parsha, basically. It's not really ever fully yours. Land is mine. It's the way it returns in the yoga. It's not yours. So to, to, to keep that in mind, so Rachel, I think, is a counterbalance in some sense to, um, to the idea of it's fully mine. In, of course, in addition to that, there's another point about Leah and Rachel, which is we have to choose one of them to be with Yaakov. It is very striking that it's Leah and not Rachel. At the end of the day, the main institutions of Israel come from Leah. They don't come from Rachel. In terms of the, think about Israel, what they are actually in terms of in terms of the political side, the kingship, the priesthood, they're all from Leah. Rachel, Joseph may be the most brilliant. At the end of the day, he's always secondary. The kingship is Judah, it's not, it's not Joseph. The priesthood is Levi, it's not Joseph. So the fact of the matter is, that's what I would say in terms of how it's perceived later on, Yermiel, and Dafka not having a place. Dafka being Baderech, which I think is, I think it's a very important uh, point, actually, in terms of not just contemporary thinking, but in general, religious thinking. It's never fully ours. That's, I think, what the Torah screams out in so many different places. It's yours to the degree you realize it's not yours. I would say that's my formulation. To the extent you realize it's not fully yours, it can be yours. It can be a chuzah. 
Tachuzah, because every 50 years you bring redemption to the land and you let it go. Then it can be yours. If you think it's fully yours, you think you're God, basically, and that's that's a non-starter for the Chumash. Anybody else with a comment? Thank you for that question. But the Ramban addressed it right on the spot. Ramban puts it in terms of two sisters. That's the Ramban. Yeah. Anybody else for a comment or question? So uh, is it uh, yes. is it possible that there's an allusion to this in Vaishtahu Yisrael Arosh Hamita that you would have thought he's bowing to Joseph, but the essence is that uh, uh, it, it's a negation as well of the dream that it's just to the Roshamita, which means uh, it's not you, it's it's God. Well, I think it, so you can read it as he's bowing down to the fact that he's thanking God, perhaps that he's, he's been able to, I mean, he's been able to, uh, to convince his son, Joseph, to, 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 I mean, I think the issue over here is that can Yaakov convince Yosef about, they have two different ways to see the world, as we'll get to in a minute, but can Yaakov convince Yosef what his true mission is? <clears throat> and I think that the beginning of it is the first statement, don't bur- Mitzrayim is not for me. Mitzrayim is not, is not, is not a good place. We have, we have a different destiny. Uh, I think that's important. So I, yes, if you can read Bowing Arosh Mita, not necessarily, I emphasize to Joseph and sort of the irony, He's bowing down to Joseph, having Joseph having agreed to do what Yaakov commands him to do, which we would understand very well would not be something that Joseph would necessarily want to do. First, it's not easy for Joseph to do it. He's the viceroy of Egypt. He's the viceroy of Egypt. He's the vice president of the land. He's going to bury his father outside the land. So that's not simple for Joseph. But yes, it can be read also, I think, as uh, thanksgiving to God for, you know, for the the fact that at least this first step is, is Yosef has agreed and he swears. I think that's one solely a way to read it. Uh, of course, the deeper question here is the issue in the story is Yaakov versus Yosef. And that will start with now and we'll hopefully finish it next week. Uh, so, and then when we resume the next set of sessions, there's still plenty to do here and then we'll start safe for Shemot, I'm hoping. So now, Abby, yes. Um, I was thinking that the idea that you that you've been saying about that when you realize that it's not really yours is when you have legitimacy to it yes. is has been brought out you brought it out with Akeda Yitzchak that just at the moment when Abraham says realizes that it's not his Hashem says you know yes. right. and you also made that claim with David that when yes, David, so right. it's the same theme that right. keeps. Another, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're with Gan Eden. We're exposed from Gan Eden because people might think they're God. And that's always dangerous. People think they're God. It's always used us in a bad, the bad way. So, no, for sure. It's something, I think it's based, it starts with Gan Eden. I think it's really one of the central motifs of, 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 our, of our Tanakh. Uh, comes up with Avram, with David, and here as well. Uh, at other places also. I think it's one of those things that it comes up in different forms, but it's yeah, the, the core idea, I think, is the same. That's for sure. Right, let me continue now. So, fine. 
Now we have the following. We'll start this now. This is stuff is very, very, very rich stuff over here. Fine. Bayar Yisrael, and then we're up to the eighth person. Bayar Yisrael, and then Yosef, Bayomer Miego. Very strange verse. Yaakov, who just said, Menashe and Ephraim are going to be mine, he sees these two children standing in front of him. He says, Who are these? Miego. Who are these children? Miego. He does not. Bayomer Yosef, Eloviv, Bonaihen. Asher Nataniel, Himbazet. These are my children. That God has given me here, Bazet. They're born here in Egypt. By Yomar, and Yaakov says, bring them to me so I should bless them. I may bless them. Now I just wanted to reflect upon this, these, these two verses for a moment. First of all, what do you mean, Why does the Chumash have this over here? So I think two ways to understand me, Ewa. But one way to understand it that the Chumash is really raising here a question. We know Yaakov is very old. And Yaakov, Yaakov wants to bless his, his grandchildren. But we remember when you read about a, a parent blessing a child or giving a blessing, and the story we all remember is the story of Yitzchak blessing Yaakov. And that story also, Yitzchak says he's very old. He may die any day. And he uh, instructs his son Esau to come. And there he actually can't see. He's, 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 his eyes are dim. We'll get to that. That's the very one more apostle. The next verse, verse number 10. And Israel's eyes were, 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 were dim with age. He could not see. Yisrael, was, Yisrael could see dimly. Yaakov can't see at all. He brings them close. He kisses them and he hugs them. This reminds us of the story of Yitzchak in chapter 27. He can't see who's standing in front of him. He suspects it might not be Asa. So he smells the, the coat. And he, he said, the voice is the voice of Jacob. He's hearing the voice. He's smelling the coat. He comes in close. He touches him. All the other senses, because he can't see. And there he blesses the wrong child, as it were. The child that he thought was actually Asa, but Yaakov. And now the Chumash is raising the question for us. How much does Yaakov know? The Chumash sets up for the reader a question because it says he can't see at all. And he just said, who are these children? What do you mean? He doesn't know who they are? Who are these children? He just said, Ephraim and Menashe are going to be like Ruben and Shimon. So now we have a question. How much does he actually understand? How much does he actually know? And, and it's, it's actually amplified by the Passage number 11. He says, I never, never either hoped for or determined I would see your face. I was never sure I would see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. But of course, we just were told he can't see. Verse number 10 says, He can't see. So what does it mean in verse number 11? Gee, he says, I. I didn't, hadn't even thought I would see you. And where you now, I can even see them. So can he see or can't he see? That's the question. That's the question the Chumash, I think, wants to be. It sets up a certain tension over here. What does, what is, what does Yaakov see? Remember, to see is also to understand, to perceive. So how much does Yaakov know? How much does Yaakov not know? The Chumash raises it as a question. 
because he's about to do something very strange, which can be interpreted as he's making a mistake. He just doesn't know what he's doing. Or no, or does the one who can't see actually see very well? That's the question. Now, there's more to these psukim. We'll have to wait for next week. But this is at least is the question. Now, there's something else over here, coming back, just going back again to that earlier puzzle, which is what, eight or nine over there? Um, Yaakov, Yosef is what Yaakov sees that there were two, dimly can see that there were two children with Yosef, but Yomrem Mi'ela. Who are, who are these children, Mi'ela? So you can read it as, who are they? He doesn't know who they are. Or you could also read it another way, which is, I'm not suggesting what I've said to him now is not right. I, I do believe it's correct. That the Chumash sets up a certain question. It heightens the drama. But Mi'e was asking another question. Um, reminds me in the book of Ruth, um, when Ruth comes back from Boaz, she was sent to, uh, uh, she, was sent, she sends Ruth to lie down at midnight next to Boaz. And she, Ruth returns back early in the morning. And Naomi says to Ruth, who are you, my daughter? What does it mean, who are you, my daughter? She knows Ruth. I mean, who are you? Who are you means something else. She's asking, who are you? Are you Ruth or, you, or, or are you Mrs. Boaz? In other words, who, who are you? Not, not, she, she knows who she is. But what is your actual status? That's what, that's what Naomi asked Ruth. She came back after midnight next to what happened? What is your status now? Having gone in the middle of the night, lying down next to the Boaz, who are you? What is your status? And over here, I think one can read the same question. Who are these children? Who are these children? The oldest one is named Forgetful. So I could forget my past in my father's house. So what Yaakov is concerned about is these children born in, in Egypt, before I got here, he says, before I got here, who are they? Are they the children of Joseph? Or maybe they're the kids of Tzafnas Paneach? Who are they? So Yaakov's not sure who they are. Yaakov says, you bring them to me. I'm going to bless them. I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them who they are. Because they may not know who they are. And once they hear who they are, the other ones will be fine. But I, but I want to bless them. And we remember, of course, that the, since we're recalling the blessing of Yitzchak to Esau, Yaakov, that's the blessing of a father to a son. So it really reinforces what Yaakov said to Yosef, which is remarkable. These are like my children. Not only in theory, but in practice, I'm going to bless them as a father blesses his children. So that's the fun. So now we have, let's just continue a little bit more over here. And we'll have to, uh, a couple, one more, big, one more puzzle, and we'll, next week we'll pick up the story. Verse number 12. Joseph removed them from his knees. <coughs> And bowed low, he bowed low with his face to the ground. Now, who's bowing down? It sounds like Joseph is bowing down before his father. Earlier, the father bowed down to Joseph in the context of Joseph obeying his father. And here, it sounds like Joseph is truly bowing down, acceding to his father's request, which borders on the chutzpah, which is, I take them away from you and I'm going to bless them. Notice something else over here. Now, I'll stop with this point. The next week, we'll, we'll begin with the blessing of Venasha and Ephraim. This get as far as we can get in. There's a lot to say here. But first of all, 
there's a play here on the Imperkav. Joseph takes them off Birkav to bring them over to Jacob, who is Avorchem, who's going to bless them. So there's a sense of Joseph sort of relinquishing his, 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 his control. And remember that the idea of a berech, a knee, right? The idea of the knee, um, you have it, the idea of the knee has something to do with also with, 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 with well, you have the, we have the word, we have gene, progeny, right? Genus is a, is a knee. So the idea of Joseph relinquishing his, his parenthood, at least temporarily, later he's going to get them back. What you have over here in the story, and this is what is remarkable, is that Yaakov is making a claim on these grandchildren as his own children to the extent he's going to bless them the way he wants. That's going to be the fight. And that Yosef is agreeing to this and is relinquishing them now. Yosef probably couldn't realize fully what Yaakov has in mind because he will object to what Yaakov does. We know that Yaakov famously will move his hands, his right hand on the head of Ephraim and the left hand on the head of Menashe. We'll talk about that next week. There's a lot, a lot to say about that. This is one of the great stories in Sefer Breshit because it brings together all kinds of themes that have emerged throughout the book. And here they come into play together. There's several of them. We'll talk about this next week. Or this is a certain way of almost a culminating story of the book. But here you have So here, let me just stop at this point and take a couple of comments or questions. And next week we'll continue and complete the set of classes with the, with the story of Menashe and Ephraim, the blessing of Menashe and Ephraim, hopefully finish chapter 48 if possible. So let me just take a couple of comments or questions and we'll stop. Happy Mother's Day to all. And uh, let me just take comments or questions. Is there anything in the chat or anything, Lillian? Is there anything there? Um, there's nothing in the chat just now. Uh, to remind people, feel free to unmute and ask your question or put it in the chat and I will read it out. Can I just say that I, I thought your comment, the way that you draw the parallels and the analysis from one, I just thought it was thrilling, exciting. Okay, thank Linking you. Linking the way that you link everything, you know, it's fascinating well, how you draw from the text. It's one of the culminating stories of the book. And the truth of the matter is, what's I think quite amazing about this book is that on one hand, the Joseph story, if you read the Joseph, it feels different than the rest of the, it reads like a novel, actually. You know, it's, it's um, but on the other hand, what the book does, it is somehow the Joseph story is so basically enmeshed, embedded in Sefer Breshit, that many of the larger themes of Sefer Breshit are going to play out. Next week, if we have, hopefully get to it next week and try to demonstrate some of the really core themes of Sefer Breshit in terms of Yaakov's life, Yaakov and Esau, Yitzhak and Yishmael, Ravon, how they all come into play here in, in the Joseph story. So you really have a sense it's fully, fully part of the story. And it is in fact, the culminating story of Sefer Breshit. That is the end of the book. So. Um, so hopefully next week we'll have a chance to look at that carefully and also start with Menashe and Ephraim and look carefully at it and, and this conflict of Yaakov and Yosef, the, the disagreement, you know.
mean, there are two giants over here. You know, there's the viceroy, the brilliant viceroy of Egypt, and there's the old father who can barely see. You know, and that's the that's the but who sees everything, of course. Hey, we'll have to stop here there at this point. So we'll uh, okay. So looking forward to next week to complete the sessions with you. And uh, okay, thank you all. Thank you, thank so you much. So much. And thank happy you. Mother's day, day to Deborah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, so much. And thank you, everyone in our learning community, for your amazing comments and questions, as always. Um, a few quick Drisha announcements before we end. Um, as a reminder, next week's session will be the final one for this term, which means there will likely be an encore or a reprise of some sort in order to finish Genesis. I'm sure we're all happy and excited. Uh, for that to come back next month. Um, as a reminder, the virtual summer Collel's applications deadline is tomorrow, so get those applications in. If you enjoy learning online with Drisha and have a bit more time this summer, we're going to have a lovely Gemara share every morning with, Rab with Rabbi Dan Margulies and a variety of evening and uh, afternoon and some evening classes. Um, you can find out about all these programs, uh, register, uh, more information at Drisha.org and a happy Mother's Day to everyone celebrating. Thank you. Thank you.